Hey, Katie, a couple episodes ago, I claimed to be everyone's favorite podcast host. Then you tried to tell everyone you were the best host with the initials KM. And for the good of the pod, I think we need to put this behind us. I think that's a great idea and so very grown up of you, Kevin. It will make our time at Max even better. I agree. I've been looking forward to meeting our listeners in person at our booth, number 251. And don't forget, they can also meet us during the professional development sessions. We all are part of at least one session. Plus, we'll be attending the others because we all love learning. You know, speaking of our love of learning, maybe there is a way to figure out who the best KM podcast host is. We could ask our biggest fan. Our biggest fan? Are you going to call up Christine? Michael, Tara, or maybe Mojo? Oh, no. I was thinking much younger. Like your kid, Leo. He listens a lot, right? Yeah, but I don't know about this. Um, fine. I'll get him. Hey, Leo, who is your favorite podcast host? Kevin. <laughs> Thanks, Leo. I'll send home some candy with your mom. Oy vey. Just don't forget to visit us at the Midwest Arts Expo booth 251. Say hello, grab a koozie, and remind Kevin that our grown-up listeners actually know who's the best. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome to There's No Business Like. My name is Kevin Maynard, coming at you from Quad City Arts, recording from Rock Island, Illinois. And as always, I'm joined by the coolest cats in the industry, Brian. Meow, Kevin. It's Brian <laughs> Zelmer from KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Danielle. Rawr. <laughs> Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean, Virginia. Josh. I hate cats. <laughs> The musical. Uh, <laughs> Josh Benson from Marion, Illinois. Come to you from the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. And the only one left for Katie now is Hairball. <laughs> no. And Katie. Meow. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. <laughs> Josh has a hairball. How much do you regret that, Kevin? I, not at all. Like, no regrets on that one. But we should apologize to the poor people like running with headphones who just had to listen to <laughs> All right. Well, friends, today's interview is a special one to me because I got to sit down with my good friend and ask him how he got started, more about the work behind the success, and share some laughs and more. Before his show at the Adler Theater here in the Quad Cities, I sat down with Bill Blagg. Now, I'll be honest, uh, I was having some difficulty coming up with a good way to start this episode, so I did what any good podcaster does, research. That's a lie. I, I actually called Bill to make him do the work for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, And in that conversation, he reminded me of something very important, and that is the magician's code. So do you all know what the magician's code is? Basically, like, don't tell how the trick is done. Yeah, I mean, that's basic concept is, you know, don't don't share, you know, the things behind the magic. But I talked to Bill and he uh, gave me some permission to uh, share some magic terms with you. But Bill thought it would be funnier if I gave you the magic term and you had to describe what it is without knowing it. Uh, all right. I'll start with Katie. OK. All right, Katie, uh, what is a French drop? Um, I'm going to guess it is when the lady is in the box and she drops down below and disappears. Ooh, I don't know. Good guess. Maybe. Good guess. All right, Josh, what is a rough and smooth deck? That's inappropriate. I said deck. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. That's a, um, 
a rough and smooth deck is a specialized card deck that allows you to figure out what card you need to use. Oh, good guess. Good. Brian, uh, what is Newton's Beads? Newton's Beads. Well, everyone knows that uh, Isaac Newton was the one that discovered gravity. And so I'm assuming gravity has something to do with it where the beads fall. And that's about as far as I can take that one. That's great. That's great. That's a that's a great guess. Uh, Danielle. Yeah. Biting yourself on the forehead. Biting yourself on the forehead? Yeah. Biting yourself on the forehead. I mean, that's got to be some kind of screw up. I mean, we can come back to you. I can, I can give a... No, you know, I need Katie to know and... the answer to all oh. of these. Are, are you not okay. going to tell us? Is that how you're not going to reveal the magic? Because I am not okay with it. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to... I mean, I... I no, I, I need to know. I really hate to jump to the end, but I mean, I told you that's magician's code. I, I can't right. tell you. Everybody I mean, so. say goodbye, Kevin. It's been great having you on the podcast. <laughs> We're gonna miss you. Totally gonna miss you. I'm taking. I'm gonna take my magic wand and make Kevin disappear. (laughs) One, two, three. (laughs) It would have been really funny if I would have just banned him from the episode right there. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's unfortunately like you're just gonna have to sit with that. I can throw some more terms at you if you really want to start having some some struggle there. So we're not gonna get the answers. No, no, I'm really not. This is not a fun game. I told you the magician's code. I didn't say it was a game. Games. I'm excited that you're bringing games to us, but you forgot. Well, thanks, friends. That was entertaining. (laughs) This is leaving us in limbo. Honestly, from from this end, quite the payoff. Uh, well, thanks, friends. That was very entertaining for me. Uh, please enjoy my conversation with Bill Blagg. Kevin. Wait till the next game, Kevin. Wait till the next Danielle game. My name is Bill Blagg. I'm a theatrical touring illusionist, an educator, a father of a three-year-old, and a husband, brother, and son. Bill, thanks for sitting down and having a conversation with me today. We will dive into the magic of Bill Black Live here in a moment, but I want to start with how did you get your start as a magician? It's a really great question because it comes from a couple different areas. I would say the very first part for me was I got a magic set for my grandparents for Christmas, like a lot of beginning magicians do. And I learned a trick in there. How old were you? I was six years old. And there was a trick in there that I was practicing in the other room of how to make a quarter disappear. And I learned how to do it. And I went in back in the living room where my dad was at and the whole family. And I showed him the trick. And I legitly fooled him. And he was like, how did you do that? And then that was the moment where I was like, sweet. <laughs> About five seconds later, I was upside down by my ankles as the money was falling into my shirt. But for that brief moment, for that brief moment, I, I just had that, uh, I hate to use the cliche term, but that sense of wonder, like, yeah. wow, I just amazed someone and he legitly didn't know how I did it. That was the catalyst. That was the match hitting the gasoline and igniting what started over 35 years ago. Wow. You learned your first illusion. What's the next step? What kept you going? Like, what was the progression there? The next step was I started to take the piece of the kit and actually learn the individual tricks. But I was fascinated with a way to be able to put them together to do a little performance. So I would take our my dad's WWE, well, WWF back then. Yeah. The Texas tornado, Hulk Hogan, Andre, the giant TV <laughs> TV tray that was on the side of his brown brown chair in the living room, and I'd put my magic tricks on there, and I would do a magic show after dinner. So I would go from piece to piece, and just at a young age, trying to figure out like, oh, how am I going to go to this next piece mm. from this piece here? And I'm sure it was really 
really bad. But at the time, for me, it was really good. I had a cape made out of a bed sheet that my mom fashioned for me with the with the bobby pin and stuff. So it was it was great. It started there. And then I started to write letters to my great grandfather out in mm. California and told him about my interest in magic. And he was an amateur magician. And for my 10th birthday, he sent me three books called the Harlan Tarbell Course in Magic. And that changed everything. What was your first performance like outside of just the, the family? My very first performance was a rummage sale for Miss Parker at the end of our block on 18th Street <laughs> in Zion, Illinois. How old were you? I was... I think I was nine. Oh, wow. yeah, I was nine. I got paid 25 cents to do magic at the end of her driveway at her garage sale huh. to bring people into the garage sale. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> I'm not sure. But, you know, I had a nice little suit on. I had a top hat on and I was standing out there. I, I think I'd got a few tips, but I'm not sure that anybody driving by got the gist of the magic trick in that moment. But I had the full sign that said magic show, magic show rummage sale, like taped to the front of the WWF TV stand. <laughs> but that was like, I would consider that my first paid gig. Yeah, 25 cents. It was hot too. I remember that. I would say the progression from there, I would... In the very first Tarbell book, they, the books themselves didn't just necessarily focus on magic. They had a ton of it, don't get me wrong. They had close-up and coins and cards. and But there was also a section at the very beginning that focused on routining, staging, the perspective from the audience's standpoint, what they expect in terms of a magician and appearance and the type of attire that you wear, things that you say, how you gesture and point to props, how you introduce certain things. Starting to read this at 10, 11, 12 years old really got my mind going. And my dad always said the tricks don't do themselves. It's like you can buy the coolest trick in the catalog and put it in the middle of the living room and it will stay there until you come back again to pick it up and it won't do anything. So the description in the catalog is great. That's what that apparatus is designed to do visually, but it's up to you to take that prop and make it do something incredible, be able to present it and perform it in a way to share that experience of magic, I guess. Learning to routine a show and think about the different beats in the moment. It was at that time early on that I started putting those pieces together. And then at 12 years old, I remember turning on the TV to CBS and it was the magic of David Copperfield. And that's the first time I saw a live television production of a grand scale magic and illusion show and was like, holy cow, you can actually do this. There's a guy out here that actually does this. And this is his career and he's a magician. I was blown away. Was this something that you were consistently doing like through high school and college as well? Absolutely. I never put it down. So I continued to, my dad found a magic shop in Chicago, gave me a choice for my birthday. Hey, do you want to have a birthday party? You want to go to the magic shop? He would take the $50 they would have spent to put a birthday party together. Mm -hmm. We went to the magic shop and started buying different magic tricks and putting shows together, which led to doing school assemblies for my local elementary school, junior high school that led into birthday party magic shows wow. so i would go to people's living rooms on saturday and sunday <laughs> had my mom drop me off two blocks away so nobody <laughs> saw that my mom dropped me off to do the show smart yeah so. it's uh what is this kid in the suit is yeah. that a kid from the uh garage sale yeah <laughs> so it, it it really progressed from there and it was just word of mouth it was wow. word of mouth i had business cards and flyers and started marketing and sending letters to different businesses like hey are you looking for magic for your holiday party any type of corporate events would mm -hmm. love to entertain and it literally just continued to snowball from there but i would say the first diving in on the business side was the birthday parties launching into the school assemblies that m migrated into corporate work 
Wow. How old were you when you transitioned into like to doing your first corporate show? My first corporate show was a dentist office in Waukegan, Illinois. So they asked me to come to an event that they do for all their employees. So I did a 35 minute routine. It was the first time actually performing for all adults. So it wasn't families there. I was 17 years old. I remember I put together some of my tried and true favorites, cut and restored rope, some different card tricks. and But it was really about the interaction with people and from the birthday party shows and using the parent of the birthday child and having that interaction with those adults over the years, it kind of set me up for that. So I would say the first one actually went pretty well. And I was like, okay, hey, you know, adults like magic too. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that we, we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast is that birthday shows or clown magicians, whatever, like sort of get a bad rap. And the reality is for you, that was a start for your career. And for many of those kids, that was the first time they were introduced to, to theater. It's what I would consider humble beginnings. Yeah. It's early on enough where it's impressionable. It makes a mark. Like I remember when the magician came to my sister's birthday party when I was a kid. And I was like, you had a magician at my sister's birthday party and you didn't hire me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I remember being in awe of him. It was a guy yeah. that my dad worked with who did magic on the side. And he cut my mom in half with a little saw and stuff. And it was really neat. And I'm yeah. like, this is cool. And it's so it's those, as you're talking about, it's those influences that pave that way to be able to move forward and look yeah. and say, hey, you can do something. Like I feel like I'm going to have to talk to my parents because they never hired a magician for my birthdays. But it's not too late, different. Kevin. It's will not you, too late. Yeah, I'll give you my card. Oh, number. It'll <laughs> be the last birthday party I ever do. <laughs> Where did you go to college and what did you major in? Went to Carthage College in Kenosha yeah. and I majored in business and marketing with a minor in communications. Was that a planned thing because of your, you know, pending magic career or was that just like, I need a job, like I want to, this is what I'm interested in? I had an offer in Las Vegas right out of high school. So I won a national magic competition when I was 18 years old. So it was called the Abbott Magic Get Together in the magic capital of the world, which everybody knows is Colon, Michigan. So I went there at the age of 18. And I won this contest and Lance Burton, a very famous magician that had a long residency at the Mirage in Las Vegas was a past winner. A lot of the magicians you see today have went through the doors of Abbott Magic and competed in that mm. contest and have ties to that city. It's the known as the magic capital because it's the Blackstone family. Mm. That oh, was yeah. That's where they were from. And I won that competition. And part of that, there's people there that put shows together and book and do things. So I had an opportunity to be on what would be considered an ensemble magic show with other magicians doing my act as part of a Las Vegas review. And I remember it was either, A, I'm going to go do that or go to college. And I had a really great opportunity scholarship wise because of my grades in high school. I remember reaching out to a gentleman in the magic community that I really respect. His name is Jim Steinmeier. He's created a lot of magic for tons of well-known magicians. He's mm -hmm. a published author. And I remember writing him and telling him about the opportunity and just seeking out his advice because he had given me a lot of advice over the years. And he told me, he said, Bill, the, I'll give you the best piece of advice is that nobody can ever take your education away and shows will always be there. And that's what made me decide to go to college. I knew magic is what I wanted to do, but it was going to be much more than just performing magic tricks and putting shows on. You had to figure out how to make how to make it profitable. So that was business. That was accounting, communications, marketing. How are you going to sell the shows? How are you going to sell the tickets? Nobody knows who I am. So that's where my mental process was at the time wow. of like, OK, hey, what can I go in here and pick up? Before we move on from that, I want to circle back to you winning the competition at, at 18 years old. Okay. One, can you describe what the illusion was that, that you won with? And then two, what does that feel like? Well, the illusion is, it's called the dancing handkerchief. And it was an effect that was made famous by Harry Blackstone Sr. The Blackstone family had done mm -hmm. it for years. It's a pocket handkerchief that you tie a knot in the end. And you cause it to come to life. So mm -hmm. right before the audience, it visually comes to life. It stands up, it dances, it moves around, does all sorts of crazy stuff. And I remember it was six months before the competition 
and I had, I had entered, I'd sent in my application and then you had a follow up with sending a VHS tape. <laughs> it's kind of scary to say. <laughs> so I had to send the tape in of the routine. I remember the deadline was coming to send in the tape and it had to be three and a half, it couldn't be longer than three and a half minutes. Mm. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do yet. And my dad had the Don Wayne dancing handkerchief that he had bought at the magic shop years ago, sitting on the shelf in his, in his, um, in his closet. He's like, Maybe you should try this. I picked it up and started putting together a routine. I liked how visual it was and how it moved around. I'm like, okay, this is cool. One of my favorite songs as a kid was CNC Music Factory, Gonna Make You Sweat, Everybody Dance Now. So I had that song on in the living room of our house and I was kind of jamming around with this handkerchief and my mom filmed it. And when we got done, it was pretty good. So I was like, all right, let's do that again. And then that's what I sent in. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. Because nobody <laughs> had done it for years. Nobody had seen the dancing handkerchief. Wow. So what was old was new again. So that's what I went and did it with. And I walked backstage and I saw performers that I had heard of that I've known for years. Mm -hmm. One of the gentlemen that was backstage, he actually took second. He came and performed at my junior high school and he did an incredible manipulation routine with cards and birds and fire and flames and snakes. It was crazy. And I remember seeing him there and instantly I was like, oh man, I'm dead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose. And I went out and did my routine. The audience loved it. I had no idea. And then when they announced the winner and it was me, I was, I was shocked. That literally was probably the first time that I was like, okay, I could actually do this. Wow. I could, I could literally do this. And I remember the judges comments. They were like, it was person. You were personable. I spoke to the audience. So I said something mm. leading into the routine, introduced myself. And they were like, yeah, nobody else talked. They just started their music and started performing. So the fact that you engaged with the crowd and had that interaction, they're like, that was a very key moment for us. Wow. Which got my mind thinking, like, maybe it's not about the tricks. Wow. That had a lot of influence on you. Big time. I mean, you can see that trajectory in, in your live show. Absolutely. Wow. Was that the largest audience that you'd performed for up until that time? Or sure. No? And it was the only yeah. time I'd ever performed for a thousand magicians. Yeah. Like, that's the nerve wracking <laughs> yeah, part. You're going out there and it's like, everybody knows how this works. They oh, probably have wow. one. They probably have, and then I fool I fooled some of them. They're like, wow. "What did you use?" Because I switched. I had three different gimmicks that I switched mm. out throughout the routine. So wow. I used a portion of each one in different parts of the routine, and they had no idea. They didn't see it coming. That is still in your show today. Is it the exact same routine that you performed then, or is slightly, it slightly modified? And it's about to get remodified. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, very cool. We've had some new technology come about since '98. That uh, weird. Yeah, you're still not doing stuff on VHS. Is no, that... you know what? We can break it out from time to time. <laughs> oh, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> For nostalgia purposes yeah. only. <laughs> so you go to college. Go to college. So you, you graduate. Do you get a job, traditional nine to five, or do you start going out on the road? I was still doing shows in college. So oh, that's wow. why I went to Carthage and Kenosha. Because it was... Because it was close by... Um, I lived on campus the first year, so I was able to have my magic table in my room with my props. And so I would leave every weekend and go out and do birthday party magic shows. I'd nail them out. Friday evenings, I would do try to do corporate work, depending on the time of year. And then Saturdays and Sundays, it was birthday parties, anywhere from four to eight of them a day. They're 35 minutes long. takes me five minutes to set up. Hey, how are you doing? In and out. That's what I was doing. That's how I was making... That's I. I I literally, I had my scholarship, but in terms of money and spending money and stuff, I was doing it from doing magic shows. And then I would take extra money from those birthday party shows. And I start, I remember when I bought my first par 64 light, because I was like, oh, hey, I need a light. And then I bought an illusion plan and bought some wood and had a local cabinet maker build my first illusion, which was a crystal box where a girl appeared. And I got a girl in one of my college classes to be the assistant to appear in the box. <laughs> so it's just that evolution of slowly those pieces, keeping my eye on the prize of 
going, hey, I want the full theatrical production type of show. And that's what I was aiming for. At what point does that happen for you? I decided I was going to go on the road. going to go on the road with my own show. I was out of college, doing the birthday party stuff. I'm like, okay, it's time to change. It's time to, it's time to go do this. And my dad had a lot of good skills with, he's HVAC. That's our family background. So he knew how to bend sheet metal and tin and all that stuff and really got into woodworking with my, my grandpa. So we bought some illusion plans. And I was going to go on tour and play theaters for the first time. So we built the modern cabinet illusion and took that glass box and those assistants rented a Hertz truck. I quickly realized with putting the holds on the dates at these theaters and looking at the contracts for the places we wanted to go to, I'm like, I don't have enough money for that. But with what we still had to build and put together, I'm like, this isn't... Uh... So I went to a business guy I knew and I, I gave a show to my business plan. I'm like, hey, what advice would you give me? And he looked at it all and he's like, you know, everything you have here is really good. The only thing I feel that you're lacking is capital. I'm like, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> he told me he wasn't going to give me any money because if he did, I wouldn't learn any lesson from it. But he would be more than happy to sign as a co-signer for me on a line of credit for the amount of $25,000. So he signed co-signed for me for $25,000 line of credit. I could draw off of it for the first 12 months. And after that, it converted to a term loan. Needless to say, I went out on that first tour and I came home deeper in debt than $25,000. And so I started working for that man full-time to pay off that term loan. Found myself into a cubicle working a 8 to 6 p.m., 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. job for a number of years while I retooled and figured out what what did I do wrong? What do I what do I need to learn here? What was that? I mean, I guess there's really like two questions here. I mean, one, what got you back on the road? And two, what did you learn from that that obviously the trajectory has changed? The number one thing right off the bat was the overall marketing of the show. Realizing that your name as a headline is a deadline because nobody knows who you are. So you're putting Bill Blagg at the top of these posters. Nope, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. You have to look at the bigger picture and say, okay, what is the product that I'm selling? What is it about this product that's going to want to make somebody take their money and buy a ticket to come see it? And then if it's a product that they like, Magic, fortunately for Magic, Magic's pretty universal. A lot of people always have exposure to it. Everybody's seen a Magic trick at some point in their life. They've attempted a card trick. Somebody's pulled a quarter out of the back of their ear or they've done the pick a card. Like it's just one of those things that just always somehow manifests themselves at some point in somebody's life. Being able to say, okay, hey, well, how do you take the show? How do you take this product as a show? And what's the value of that show? And then starting to work backwards and figure out the number. That was the interesting part for me is the working backwards saying, okay, hey, a truck rent is this much. Fuel is going to be this much. And the hotel is this much. And this is this much. And the theater costs this much. And the ticket fee is this much. So when you add all this stuff together and you know that in a 1200 seat venue, maybe a couple hundred people are going to show up to see you. So divide that out. And what's that ticket number? Oh, wait, you forgot to put your marketing budget in there. And then a matter of how are you going to reach the people? It was those questions that drove me crazy for so long. I mean, really what you learned and the key difference was that you started treating it like a business absolutely instead of going at it with and I, I i i sort of hate to say this but like sometimes there's this mindset in theater and the arts that like the money will come mm -hmm. um and there's really not there's not always a plan for it and so we especially you know theaters like people who are really passionate about the arts like they have this idea that like oh i'll present this thing and like the money will be there like people will show up and the reality is it's like that's not always the case right but backing into it is essentially like it's treating it like a for-profit business versus Absolutely. just, <clears throat> I mean, for not, not to sound like denigrating, but just a magic show. Correct. And that's, a, and, and I remember in my communication with Jim Steinmeier, I still saved the letter from him. He said, it's called show business, Bill. It's 85% <laughs> business, 15% show. You're doing the show to satisfy the obligation 
of the business. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. And it, I was just like, okay. So I knew I needed a new strategy. I needed a different way to go about it because the numbers didn't make sense for somebody starting out. Yeah. And so I reached out to a magician that was touring the country. He was had the second largest magic show in the country underneath David Copperfield. And you wow. never heard of him. And Jim Steimer connected me to him. And his name was Jay Owenhouse. And he's based out of Montana. Yeah. And I reached out to Jay and I said, hey, you know, my name's Bill Blagg. Jim Steimer mentioned for me to talk to you. Curious, you know, I'm an up and coming magician and looking to do this. And he's like, I would recommend that you get the Secrets, Illusion, Know-How book from Stan Cramian. Read it. And then call Stan because he did Stan's program. So it was mm. literally phone rooms when you could still pick up the phone and do that yeah. sort of thing. So I got Stan's book. I wrote four pages of notes. Stan charged $100 an hour to talk to him on the phone. And I booked, and you had to send the check ahead of time. So I, I paid $200 up front, and I got on the phone with Stan, and I had four pages of notes, and we just started working through them. And he stopped me halfway through, and he's like, I don't think anybody's ever called me that's been this prepared. I'm like, I like I literally scraped to get you this $200. So I, like, I need to do what I can do here. And I took away from that a fundraiser opportunity with the Magic Show. Wow. So that's where things started to take off from there, I guess I would say, in terms of audience and attendance. And literally did a phone room from my apartment. I had a credit card machine. I had tickets, envelopes, Microsoft Access. And I was doing the script that was in Stan's book with some tips from Jay. And I'd team up with the local Kiwanis Club, the Band Boosters Club, the um, Athletic Boosters, whatever group in the communities around. Like He's like, draw a, pic draw a circle, 100 miles radius around where you live and find theaters in small towns that are hooked to high schools. Mm -hmm. And high schools are always raising money. Groups in the community are always raising money. Fire departments, non-for-profits, Kiwanis, Lions, any of those, like find one and go do your magic show for that. And so we would call, hey, we're calling on behalf of the local Lions Club. We're doing our annual fundraiser, the Magic Bill Black. Tickets are $10 donations. We Can we get you some in the mail? People are like, sure. We put them in envelopes, stuff them with an invoice, mail them out. About 40% of them would come back with a check. And then it goes into bank. We do the show and we split it with them. And that's where it all started. Let's talk marketing. Okay. Because obviously that has played a key part. And I will say that as somebody who has booked you to perform at a, at a theater, your marketing plan and your marketing is, it's really good. I will also say that I stole it and used it for other shows. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the I, honesty, Kevin. I mean, it was very successful. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> so, okay, make sure you put the invoice in the mail. No, I'm still so, so I, but it like, works. Yeah, like, yeah. and so obviously, like, it's it's not something that you were, you know, that you're just like, you know, throwing it at the wall and going like, well, I hope this works. No. So let's break this down into, into two things. Let's okay. start first marketing you as the performer to the venue, mm -hmm. um, because like most people in this industry. I believe either know or should know that that's a different form of marketing than marketing to the person on the street. Like Absolutely. The the pitch you gave me isn't the pitch that I'm giving my audience. Correct. What does that marketing pitch to the venue look like for the magic of Bill Black? So without diving into the brass and tax yeah. at all, yeah. I'm going to kind of talk more high level with Perfect. it. 
because I feel this could be applicable to any other act that's listening, a new up and coming act that is looking at maybe they're going to attend their first conference this fall uh, and they're wondering kind of how we all were early on, like, OK, what do I need to be doing here? So as you touched on it, very key marketing to a potential venue that's going to bring your show in is completely different than marketing to the patron or the ticket buyer. You're selling them two separate things. The person buying your ticket has no interest in how long your load in is, how many local crew you need, any type of rider needs, what the tech side of the production is. That means nothing to them. But however, marketing to the venue, that stuff is critical. Also looking at the type of production in the show that you bring. So each venue, as much as venues are similar, they're all different. Everybody has their own need or mm -hmm. desire. There are venues who are focused on revenue. Their main focus is dollar. That's a different conversation for marketing to that venue than the venue whose main focus is community. I want to bring as many people into this venue as possible for the show. I'm trying to grab people from all different age ranges, that type of thing. So that's two completely different conversations, as well as a family series. Hey, we have a family series every year, and we would like to have a magic show this year. Then that's a different conversation. So it's all really number one for me is about understanding what it is that the venue's truly looking for. What is it that they're looking for from us mm -hmm. to assist them with? Because it's more than just the show that we bring. And then on the show itself, when you get into that stuff, now more than ever, venues are still, I mean, we're seeing it across the country. People are still hard pressed in terms of staff and many venues, the staff in those venues are wearing multiple hats and doing multiple jobs just to keep the doors open and the lights on and the operation still running. When they're looking at these shows, if I got to come and load in at eight o'clock in the morning for a 7 p.m. show at night, it's a very expensive day when you started adding up labor. Now, if you got to gel and focus lights and do a pre-hang and plot and program lights when you get there, this starts getting really heavy and really big versus a performance like us, we're bringing it all with us. I don't need to use any of your inventory. We're bringing our intelligent lighting rig. We're bringing our stage sets. We're bringing our illusions. We're efficient. We have checklists. Everything's down to the time. And we keep this in mind in terms of union or non-union houses. So we can go into a union house, load in, do a show, take the appropriate, the necessary breaks for your coffees and your dinners and lunches, that sort of thing, and load out and be out of there without any overtime. And it's having that conscious mindset of understanding, and this goes back to the business side, understanding the bottom line impact of what this all means. I go into all those conversation with that approach because I understand being on that side of the equation. It's not a conversation about, Bill, tell us what kind of magic tricks you do. A lot of what you said sort of ties back to relationship building in the industry. I would be curious, do you know, like maybe on average, if you were to go to say a, a conference, whether that's, you know, APAP or Max or whatever, is there like an average time frame of when you will be booked? If you and I were to first meet at APAP in January, are you like, oh, uh, Kevin's a great guy, right. will not be in his venue until three years? We don't associate a time frame to it. Yeah. Again, all relationships are different. Somebody that we're meeting for the first time might not be familiar with us. I mean, we're fortunate to have been here for 20 plus years. So we definitely have word of mouth. We have a history in the marketplace. So somebody early on coming in, you have to develop and build that history. And I remember what those years look like when you know you get a handful of venues that would take a chance on you. And it's like, okay, hey, and you strive to deliver the best product and the best result for them to then have that word of mouth start spreading. And word of mouth is more powerful than any other piece of paid advertising that you could do, or I'm going to call it chess beating saying, Hey, I'm the best. You got to book me. You know, this is the show for you. We don't do that. You've been to conferences. You've been in some of those high pressure situations. Like, <laughs> yeah. all right, Hey, let's pick the date. And you're like, Whoa, whoa, whoa I didn't <laughs> say I was doing anything yet. Slow down. And for us, it's more just having that dialogue, building that relationship. And when the time is right, the pieces will fall into place. Let's talk marketing at a, at a different level. Okay. So we have talked about marketing to the venue. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your marketing approach from the artist. What do you provide to the venue? And are you providing them essentially the 
same thing that you would provide if you were renting that venue. I guess what I'm saying, what are you providing that you feel is different? Does that make sense? It makes perfect okay. sense. I'm just trying to be tactful because we <laughs> granted anything that we have that we're doing. I wouldn't say anything necessarily the elements themselves are rocket science. Yeah. But the combination and the way that we build yeah, the you've, recipe. You've, you've put it together well. Right. But the way that that recipe with the different ingredients is put yeah. together is what makes the award-winning rib. But I can what, tell you what the process. It, yeah, what was the process? What did it yeah. take to get there? So like, here's, there... yeah, I did a presentation for Michigan Arts Presenters where we touched on this subject. I'm fascinated by the number of venues that I hear from once they receive our marketing kit mm -hmm. that continually says, wow, I wish everybody would do this. So I started asking the questions of, well, what do you usually get? And that was a fascinating part for me. Mm. is they usually don't get much. They're left on their own to have to Google, find images, right-click, save, use things that if they presented the show before, just go back in that folder on the computer and reuse those materials, not realizing if anything's new or updated. And I was running into this because, well, you're my, I got that nice Joe Rogan <laughs> hairstyle. So, But I was going to venues, and I was like, go onto their website, look at the show listing, and there I am with a full set of hair and with a show description that wasn't the description of the current show. And I continually ran into this and I'm like, hmm. but then once I realized like, okay, hey, this is more a matter of the conditioning of the people that are in those roles of what they continually have to do mm. in order to put a show up. It's they're not trying to sabotage me or don't know a they didn't receive the materials because they were buried in a link somewhere deep in a rider. That wasn't at the forefront. So that's bad communication on our part. We need to make this clearer so they're able to access that information and they understand and it goes to the right person. So instead of just providing that link, it's who's in charge of this. Please provide us with that contact information so we can then lead and spearhead those materials getting to that person. And a lot of times it's multiple people nowadays. Mm -hmm. You have your social media, you have your standard other marketing channels, but you have people that drive web content. So it's all different. And every venue is unique. Some venues don't have a marketing person. The executive director is handling that. Yeah. Other venues have a whole team of people. So for us, it was more about, okay, hey, they're, they're continually fighting this challenge. And this is what I talked to the Michigan Arts presenters about. Artists will provide a venue with a writer of saying, hey, here's the things that we need from you. But I also believe that this relationship is a two-way street. It should be a 50-50 not a 80, 20, it should be a 50, 50. So if you have things that you require, you're asking from us, then they should also be able to ask things from you, like a marketing support writer. Like here's the following things that we need as per terms of this agreement to be able to move forward, to help assist the venue in marketing the show. And then the other part that really blew my mind, nobody sends a marketing plan. They don't know who their target demo is. They don't know how they would sell their show in a brief two or three sentences or a brief description to the ticket buyer. They've never done that side of the process. So these marketing people are having to literally come up with marketing strategies for their shows, each show. So if you're presenting a season of 18 shows, they're having to do them all. I think what's really fascinating about that is the concept of a marketing writer asking your artist saying like, I mean, even if it's like fill out this information, like let us know, like what's your demographic here that we can, we can Absolute, market to. Yes. Have you seen that from any venues? No. I think I'm going to start. <laughs> now, but here's the other thing. And like I told, uh, like, uh, well, as we discussed it at that presentation, it was, but you have to be specific. You can't just say, I need a high res image. Cause what is that? 300 DPI image, 
but you don't know what you're going to get. Do you want an action shot? Do you want a static shot? Is it vertical? Is it landscape? Yeah, where is it going to be used? Right, where is it going to be used? Through the process of this, I have seen, and I'm seeing more and more venues doing this, which is great. And if venues have done this in the past and we just didn't encounter them, awesome. But we're seeing venues that literally will say, hey, here's the following requirements that we need art-wise, because we have a designer on staff. So we'll produce the content for the website and social media. So all their different, anything digital that the venue is going to have from their website listing. When you go to the list of events, yeah. click in, go to the show listing, those image sizes change. Yeah. Sometimes they can support multiple images, video links, all that stuff. So I've seen some venues that will provide all that stuff in sizes and pixels and everything mm. else. So we'll literally send them a Dropbox link specific for their venue with all their assets already done. As long as they send us a logo, their their venue logo. And then if they have any branding that is part of their normal branding to uh, ensure that there's a more uniform feel to everything, yeah. you know, we'll integrate their brand strategy into it. For artists out there that are emerging and up and coming, and again, it goes back to the, what the goal is. We're a commercial, we're a commercial show. So we're a show that looks at box office sales and looks at the overall cost of presenting the show and to make it a profitable venture for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. Like we're in, we're not interested in going out and having anybody lose money. And it's much more than that. But when it comes down to the dollars and cents, like that's the part of this operation. So we spend a lot of time to focus on the marketing and the brand and to make sure that we understand how to hit our target demo, where they are, who they are, and the channels that they're looking at and the message that appeals to them appropriately. So mm. we've done all this research ahead of time to the point where I would stand at an airport with a sign with an A and a B where the people were going to Las Vegas back before, you know, you yeah. get through security. You're like, hey, you're going to go to Las Vegas. You're going to heading to Vegas. What show would you see out of these two? I'd see that one. Why? And I jot down their answers and see why people were responding to different pictures versus others. And we did the same exact thing with our social media strategy, with the images that we use for advertising our show. Like they're not just the picture that we picked with some content on there because, oh, wow, that looks neat. It's those are the ones because they've been proven effective and it's mm -hmm. the stuff that the community engages with the most. And we track everything. We track conversion rates on social media, click through pixels. We know when they're cl clicking off of what, if they're clicking through to be able to purchase tickets, like we're watching it all and we'll run multiple images if we're testing something new out yeah. like we're doing right now. And we'll see how those trend and track compared to past stuff. Social media is ever evolving. So it's a, it's a lot of effort. It's that, yeah. again, it's that 85% business side. You led right into it. So it's a lot. Like with the things you just talked about, like there's a lot of things that are happening there. There's a lot of effort that goes into that. What would be your advice for somebody who is sort of just starting out in this realm, who maybe doesn't have maybe the time or the support mm -hmm. that you have? Like mm -hmm. that you're like, look, if there is one or two things that you should focus on marketing wise, like this is it. I would focus on a really great description that's concise and clear that within a matter of a sentence or two paints a very clear picture of who you are and what you do or what mm -hmm. your show is and what it's about from a buyer standpoint and not not the venue, the ticket buyer. Yeah. Why? There's the bigger question. Answer this question. Why would somebody want to spend their money to come see the show? So at the beginning of this, you said you also mentioned educator and father, husband, son, brother, if I remember correctly. There you go. Yeah. So first, why why, why did you choose the, the education side of your business? The education side came about uh, from Simon. He said, you have a really great background of working with young audiences with your early years being birthday party shows. So you understand how to engage them, how to, how to entertain them. It's like, I really think you should 
think about an education show. And I remember my initial response, and this is me just from not being educated about what an education show was. I'm like, Simon, I performed for kids for 15 plus years. I don't want to go back to doing that. That's not what my goal is. He's like, I think you're thinking about it wrong. He goes, and I would encourage you to explore it some more. And if it's something you want to do, let me know. And it took three years. And I remember all of a sudden coming up with this thing like, oh, because I had it in my mind. The education show was like the school assemblies that I saw where they came and did the bullying show. The yeah. say no to drug show. And I'm like, I don't want to go up there doing magic tricks and then use that to be like, and the red light means stop. But when I discovered that we could use the format of a narrative basis, like we use with our full scale show and take the audience, even though it's a young audience on a journey that has a beginning, middle, beginning, middle and end, a beginning, middle and end and connects and use that with, in our case, scientific principles or the scientific method and make it all encompassing and make this incredible experience out of it. Like, oh, wow, that could be something. And that's where science magic was born. I would honestly say that it's some of the most rewarding work that we've done. Like, I truly love the evening full scale production especially the track that that show is going on right now, yeah. which is drastically shift the education stuff, like knowing that we're able to influence these young audiences, expose Huge. them to theater, bring them into these gorgeous performing arts centers, let them experience the music, the lights, the sound, the smoke, the haze, the drops. Like we bring a production with it. Yeah. We call it a concert for the kids. <laughs> they had this incredible theatrical experience and from the narrative and the pattern to the lessons that are weaved mm -hmm. into the show, to the study guide and how it all connects for the teachers to take this back in to do the continuing education in the classroom. The overall experience beginning to end, I mean, getting the letters from the kids who hand draw their favorite part. And I'm yeah. all excited, I just bang the microphone. That's the rewarding part because it goes so much beyond us and who we are. Yeah. And this is us being able to impact and affect communities as well as our leaders in, uh, of tomorrow. Yeah, that's huge. The other thing I wanna talk about is relatively recently, you became a father. Mm -hmm. How has that changed your business? It's changed it drastically. <laughs> <laughs> My son was born January 17th of 2020. And we all know what happened in March of 2020. I spent a lot of time with him at home. Yeah. Day in, day out, it was a super silver lining to a really dark time. And that's, it's invaluable. And being able to punch in with him and have that and not be gone on the road and miss these critical moments like that, I'm super blessed for that. In terms of the business, it, you know, it inspires me. It makes me work and push harder. At the end of the day, like, I want him to be like, that's my dad. Yeah. That's my dad. I want to make him proud. I love that. Being a father and a husband and business owner, magician, all of these things can be very stressful at times. Absolutely. How do you how do, how do you like work out that balance? Like what puts you at ease? Like what are the things that you do to take care of you? I I learned a hard lesson that I won't get into details. Yeah. Uh, about six years ago. And it was because I was so driven with the business side that that's where I was laser focused. And I was yeah. absent in so many other areas of my life with family, friends, my wife. Like I was literally show, 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 working next illusion, developing this, working on this business that one, two o'clock in the morning, rinse, repeat, 6 a.m., doing it again. It was just over consuming. And I remember having a really great conversation with Kevin Spencer where he painted a picture and said, Bill, a magician is what you do do. It's not who you are. Mm. And so many people get lost in their profession and their profession becomes their identity because and that's something that you really have to focus on, especially like magician, like people, you can't walk down the street or people know, oh, you're a magician, do a magic trick. And I like how he's like, well, ask him what they are. Are you a plumber? Are you going to come fix my toilet? Like it's the same thing. <laughs> yep. And just because you're a performer doesn't mean that you perform on demand. Yeah. Like a singer, like, hey, built me a song. Like it doesn't work like that. And he's like, you're, you're a human. You're a son, you're a father, you're a husband, 
you're a brother. Like these are the core pieces that are important during COVID and being home with my son. Like it really taught me to step back. Like before that time, I wanted every show. I wanted all of them. I wanted every opportunity. I wanted the calendar full. And I was very hungry to make that happen because I'm just a very driven individual. And then I realized like, I don't need every show and I don't need to be gone every week because that time that I have at home to go fishing with my wife, we love to bass fish, yeah. go fishing with my wife. And Miles, that's my right-hand man in the show for a number of years, 20 plus years. Like he always tells me, he's like, hey man, when it's all said and done and you're on your final days, it's not going to be about this big show or that show, it's going to be about the people you love and the relationships that you've had with them in your life. Like that's literally what's going to matter at the end of the day. Not how much money I have, or I did this many shows or any of that. He's like, it doesn't matter. Just, it's going to come down to love at the end of the day. And I'm like, all right. So I mean, it's literally taught me to step back. Yeah. Like, I don't need it all. It's okay. And I found a peace in that because I literally can now hang out with my son during the day, turn the email off and those messages will get picked up tomorrow because I'm spending time with him. And that took a long time to get to mentally. If you were to get in a time machine right now, mm -hmm. go back to Bill Blagg, just won the competition. What advice would you give to yourself? Go see a Broadway play. Expand upon that. The very first Broadway play I ever saw was Jersey Boys. My mother-in-law got tickets from work and she said, hey, would you guys like to come to us to come see this show? It's called Jersey Boys. I'm not sure that you're going to like it. But if you guys would like to come, we can go do dinner and go to a show. I'd never been to a Broadway show. I had never seen anything like that in my life. I was 33 years old. And I walked out of there that night. It changed everything for me. Like it changed everything the story the impact of it how it connected it was somebody else's story but that connected with me mm -hmm. through the things that they were dealing with yeah which you can associate on your own like any good broadway show does and i remember walking out of that show going this is what tarbell was talking about on ways to connect with your audience and be authentic and be able to take them somewhere and jersey boys does it through song we do it through magic it was so if i could go back i would have gone to a broadway show a lot sooner like i can't wait to take my son wow and i tell people that all the time like now my wife and i are subscribers at the paramount theater in aurora illinois we're broadway subscribers we go to all the shows there anytime we get a chance on the road if we're at a venue early and they have a broadway show in town we're like hey any tickets you know <laughs> that we could buy i'll try to expose ourselves to as much of it as possible because all the shows are unique they're different and there's so many takeaways and they hit you from so many different angles yeah. and go to see a broadway show much sooner i would i would get in the theater wow that's a great answer. Anything else, Bill? Anything you want to drop in here at the last moment? I'd say if there's one thing I'd want to leave people with, whether you've been in this business a while, whether you're just starting out, we always have these times where whether people admit it or not, they wonder, is this right? Am I doing the right thing? You know, I was expecting this. I would just say, take a deep breath, patience, and just follow your gut. Follow your gut. Because there's going to be times when just you're questioning it. And we've had it. Like, hey, you know, we were expecting by this point to be here and doing this and that's not what the and it's just keep working hard be honest and build those relationships and just be patient be patient my dad said an overnight success takes 30 years we're almost there excellent well bill thank you for your time today it's I a pleasure really appreciate it i had a great time thank you. yeah i feel like we i could fill a couple more hours at least yeah <laughs> so. you know this is this is a lot of fun and it's a it's a great business to be involved in and what i really love about this whole industry as a whole it's the people, it's the community. We get to do something really unique and on all sides of the business, whether you're the performer or you're in the office or you're the usher. It's a really fascinating and interesting industry that we're in that is very diverse and it's a lot of fun. And when you really step back and look at it, it's a big family. 
it's a big family and it's you know how the big families go you always got that quirky uncle you know we got one of those too you know yeah. a few of them but you know it's great that's what i really love about it most it's yeah. seeing your friends working with your friends like on the road we're here at the adler theater for our show in davenport tomorrow night you know the union guys we know the crew looking forward to seeing them all and yeah. saying hello and that's literally what this all becomes after so many years and it takes a while to get there so work hard take those vitamins say your prayers because what you're gonna do kevin <laughs> excellent well bill i appreciate it seriously all right i'm keeping that as the out <laughs>Kevin, thanks for having this conversation with Bill. And I really loved how he just starts it out by all of the things that he identifies with as a person and not just as his profession. And I really love that he starts it out by shaping his, himself as who he is as a whole. And I, and I think that's really important for us to remember in this industry is that we're all here together. And this is one thing that we all do and that we all share, but we all are here as humans and we have lives and families and people that we care about and that that's all a part of what we bring into it. Yeah. You are more than your career or your title for sure. Kevin, I also loved how much your friendship with Bill came through in this interview. You both are so engaging and I thought you asked really wonderful questions and helped really dig into the nuances of what Bill does, especially on the business side. Listening to it, I was like, oh, this is why Kevin and Bill are friends. Uh <laughs> Uh, so I appreciated you getting him to talk so much more about the business side. And I particularly loved learning how intentional he was with his choices in college. Like he is clearly like has a mind for business and maybe is like genius level because at 17, 18 years old, he was already anticipating the need for having business and marketing, um, business and marketing background. So I really loved that. And then tracing that through line through his career and how much, he thinks about that. So yeah, I thought it was a really valuable part of the conversation. And Katie, with, with your reference to, to how much he talked about the business, I loved the one specific quote about show business. Like that tag, it was beautiful. I wrote it down so that I could get it right. Like it's called show business. It's 85% business, 15% show. You're doing the show to satisfy the obligation of the business. And that is the truth about our overall industry. And it's the business that facilitates us being able to, you know, be in the arts and make a living at it. And the art itself is right there with the business. But but to, to focus on the business like that, I just, I love everything about that. The whole part that he talked about with the marketing and how he is proactive in sending the high quality images and making sure that they're the appropriate ones and timely ones. Uh, I thought it was hilarious thinking about how a presenter used him, uh, an old curly haired picture version of him when he clearly has no hair now. Um, and, and I've seen it the other way around too, where artists that are getting a little bit up there in age are giving us like headshots from like 30 years ago. I just appreciated the way he thought about the presenters and understands that we're going through wearing a lot of different hats and trying to jump through hoops sometimes to get materials from people. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes we'll just ask for a high res image because sometimes just getting one high res image is hard enough, let alone, hey, make it landscape, make it this, make it that. I mean, it shouldn't be that way, but it really is still in this day and age, which is incredible to, to realize. And I'm talking about some A-list names like that. I'm not talking just, you know, about a new artist that doesn't know anything yet. Yeah, your discussion of a marketing writer was like, psh, blew my mind. <laughs> and just like coming back to the idea of do you need vertical or landscape images, the 
a number of landscape images we have is incredible. And somehow we've chosen a standard poster that really needs a vertical image. And from a presenter's perspective, you want to have some amount of branding that's consistent throughout the whole season because, you know, you're, you're really showing off other people's work, right? So you, you want to frame it um, in your lens because that's what you're there to do. And, and you do have to make those kind of branding choices, but really knowing that a presenter needs a vertical photo sounds like such a small thing, but it's huge. I mean, that like is the difference between your poster being like average and a little bit pixelated to like really jumping off the page. If we can share that with an artist at the beginning and having, you know, if it's somebody like Bill and his team that can create that, that's a great opportunity if they know about that in advance. And then, you know, if they don't, they can help us go, okay, like here's images that'll be an easy edit down for, you know, a vertical, you know, for, for that sort of um, setup. The first time that I worked with Bill, he came to us with a complete marketing plan. Um, it had, you know, who his audience is. It also had, you know, what type of radio stations that he advertises on and all sorts of things. And But what I learned, like reading through that marketing plan and watching it in action um, for his show is that it worked uh, and and it, it helped realize that you know, making some small changes on, on every show that we do and not just going with like this boilerplate marketing plan. There's like, oh, we put X amount into radio. We put X amount into posters. We put X amount into Facebook um, by adjusting that based on the show. Like that was the key takeaway. Like there were some things that I was like, oh, like I don't know why I'm advertising on this radio station because it forced me to really think about why his worked. And uh, so not to bring it back to Michigan, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was actually in the room for that presentation that Bill references in your interview. So that was actually with the Michigan Presenters Network, our statewide consortium, um, in 2019 when we had our conference at the Frohenthal in Muskegon. And Bill had been at the Frohenthal a couple of years before and had a really successful show because of that marketing plan. And he's really good friends with our friend, Xavier Verna, who we've had on the pod. And so Xavier was president and brought Bill in for that conference. And I think two things. One, I love the exchange of information and the curiosity that Bill exhibited during that conversation and um, actually asking us, the presenters in the room, like, what do you get? What works? What doesn't work? Like, I know that he had a sense of that beforehand, but I, I recall having a really robust conversation in that room and all the presenters being like, yeah, it's really hard to market shows. Like, and we get absolutely no support from the artists. You know, it's really 100% on us to determine, <laughs> to find the assets, to, you know, to do all the things that he talked about. And um, coming out of that, I think everyone just had a much different perspective on what could work and how to think about things differently and how to ask artists or work with artists to really get what they needed versus feeling kind of left out in the wilderness. Um, and then I think the second biggest thing was that he talked about that I'm so passionate about and... <laughs> have talked about before is that description, having a description that you're using to sell to the presenter. And then the description that is used for your patrons, like beyond having like a two or three sentence, like he recommended, give me a one sentence description, give me a three sentence description, and then give me a short paragraph. I need options as a presenter, depending on where I'm putting the copy, because I will get two or three paragraphs in a marketing document that then I have to cut down myself depending on where that's going. And I might not be getting the essence of what the artist actually wants to convey, or I've never seen the full show. I may have seen a 15 
minute showcase. And I am cutting copy based on that. So and marketing folks, they're not going to conferences with us. They're not seeing the work. They've maybe seen a sizzle reel and then they have to cut copy down based on what they see in a sizzle reel. Like that's how that's not fair. <laughs> and it doesn't do justice to the work that we're trying to present. So I think I would actually ask artists to go beyond that like two or three sentence patron centric description um, and really like give us some options please you know your work the best please help us describe it and support it and sell it the best that we can as as presenters well and I'm going to use all three of those descriptions that you used I mean print overall I think we're using less of I mean we definitely are mm, and when true. we are doing print it's you know it's smaller scale it's postcard our guides aren't aren't going to have as many pages um these coming years so all that means everything gets pared down the descriptions even um some of the photo sizes although we're we're trying to keep those because we do know that the photos also really sell the show but I'm going to use a one sentence description on um some assets I think the most I can get in any sort of like print distributed, um, any kind of media anymore is like three sentences, but then on our website, you know, we can have that, um, catchy two sentences at the top, but then I can also list like, here's a lot more details about this show. And, and like you said, Katie, like we're cutting from all of it. So to get all of that copy, I mean, we're like cutting and pasting and moving around and making it right for each different medium. And if artists do think that it matters specifically for their show, or there's a way that they like those things, getting it in the format ahead of time is going to save everybody a headache. One of the shows last year that we did here at the Marion Civic Center was Our Planet, Netflix's Our Planet Live. And it came with a 30-page marketing pack. And it had social media posts that you could just copy and paste. It had hashtags. It had all of their handles it had and and the social media posts it had multiple social media posts and it had multiple things formatted it had it formatted for stories it had it formatted for reels it had vertical video it had horizontal video it had everything in this package and it's it's the most rep, robust representation i've ever had but and it talked about demographics it was a basically a cut and paste demographic guide for what demographics for targeted social media it, it was like it was the most in-depth document that I've ever received and it was wonderful like I knew exactly what to do from there yeah I, I don't think bills is 30 pages but it's very similar content wise I mean just because it was it, it copy and paste and you know he knows his product like like you know most artists do um, so he was like this is the way it should be sold and it it works I just want to bring back to sort of what Josh was talking about at the beginning of this conversation. And I really felt Bill when he was talking about essentially work-life balance and especially when he had a kid and how lucky he felt during the pandemic to be able to spend all that quality time with his new child instead of being on the road and missing so much of the, the important stuff at where so, you know, almost daily there's important things at that young age. So I, I'm glad that he had that opportunity and I, I just felt that very much. The other thing that really struck me about Bill's um, interview was his advice, yeah. which was go and see a Broadway show. And Except cats. <laughs> I think that's so important to see how other people perform, how other genres uh, put their shows together and to start to looking at, start looking at performances 
um, from that lens of how it goes together rather than just like the story from like a pure audience perspective. I think as a performer, as a producer, as a production maker, you can take so much from just seeing different styles of performance and different performers. Well, thank you, friends. That was a great conversation. And thank you, Bill, for taking time to sit down with me on There's No Business Like. And we'll see you all next week. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. Ladies and gentlemen, live 97.5. We're here live in the back of the Prevo tour bus. Kevin Maynard. Kevin Maynard here. Quad City Arts. Get ready to kick it off here. You're not recording, are you? No, I am recording. Oh, yeah. I oh, will totally heard? have that for you. Yeah. <laughs> closing, Kevin. I would say in closing, Kevin. Say your prayers and take your vitamins. Because what you going to do, brother? What you going to do? When Podcastamania runs wild on you, there's no business like.